Welcome to the Chris Wallace Chronicles. All right, you don't know who that is. Okay. He lives in Australia now, but he lived in Hollywood before Australia and New York before Hollywood. You know, the actor, the songwriter. He was at ringside for the first Ali Frazier fight, Liza Minnelli's date one night. He used to smoke weed with Morgan Freeman. Likes to tell stories, like this one. Letters from the Earth was published in 1960, 50 years after Mark Twain died, and only then when his one remaining daughter, Clara, said it was okay. Mark Twain didn't think we'd be ready for it until 500 years after he died. It begins with the narrator. The Creator sat upon the throne thinking. Behind him stretched the illimitable continent of heaven, steeped in a glory of light and color. Before him rose the black night of space like a wall. His mighty bulk towered rugged and mountain-like into the zenith, and his divine head blazed there like a distant sun. At his feet stood three colossal figures, the archangels. Then the Creator holds out his hand. I have a thought. Behold. From his hand burst a fountain spray of fire, a million stupendous suns which clove the blackness and soared away and away and away, diminishing in magnitude and intensity as they pierced the far frontiers of space. Until at last, they were but as diamond nail heads, sparkling under the domed vast roof of the universe. So, everything we know as the universe was created in that moment, according to Mark Twain. The three archangels were dismissed, and they started to talk things over. Satan started the conversation. We, we have witnessed a wonderful thing. As to that, we're necessarily agreed. I think space was well enough just as it was, and useful too. Cold and dark. But these are details of no considerable moment. The, the new feature, the immense feature, is the invention and introduction of automatic, unsupervised, self-regulating law for the government of these myriads of whirling and racing worlds and suns. He said those countless vast bodies would plunge through the wastes of space around stupendous orbits at incalculable speeds and never collide and never lengthen nor shorten their orbital period by so much as a hundredth part of a second in 2,000 years. And he had a name for it. He called it the law of nature. He said the law of nature, natural law, is the law of God, one and the same thing. Then the archangels are asked to return because the Creator wants to show them something new. He has decided to make animals. The archangels were confused, and as usual, Satan is the one who speaks up. Oh, what are they for, divine one? They are an experiment in morals and conduct. Oh, this, this large creature here is killing the weaker animals, divine one. The tiger, yes. The law of his nature is ferocity. The law of his nature is the law of God. He cannot disobey it. Then, in obeying it, he commits no offense, divine No, he is blameless. Ah, uh, this, other, this other animal here is timid, divine one, and suffers death without resistance. 
The rabbit, yes, he is without courage. It is the law of his nature, the law of God. He must obey it. Well, the spider kills the fly and eats it. The, the bird kills the spider and eats it. The, the wild cat kills the goose. The... Well, they're all murderers, divine one. And they're not to blame. They are not to blame. It is the law of their nature, the law of God. Now, behold, a new creature, man. Well, what shall you do with them, divine one? Put into each individual in differing shades and degrees all of the various moral qualities that are distributed among the non-speaking animal world. Courage, cowardice, ferocity, gentleness, fairness, justice, cunning, treachery, magnanimity, cruelty, malice, malignity, lust, mercy, pity, purity, selfishness, sweetness, honor, love, hate, baseness, nobility, loyalty, falsity, veracity, untruthfulness. Each human being will have all of these in him. They will constitute his nature. In some, there will be high and fine characteristics which submerge the evil ones, and these will be called good men. In others, the evil characteristics will have dominion, and these will be called bad men. Observe, they vanish. Wh whither are they gone, divine one? To the earth, they and all their fellow animals. Wh what is the earth, divine one? Uh, a small globe I made a time, two and a half times ago. You saw it, but did not notice in the explosion of worlds and suns that sprayed from my hand. Man is an experiment. The other animals are another experiment. Time will show if they were worth the trouble. This sets up the premise. Satan gets himself banished from heaven. Again. It happens every time he gets caught making sarcastic remarks about the Creator's pet projects. He decides to go out into space and hunt up the earth and see how the human race experiments coming along. He reports his findings to Michael and Gabriel in letters he sends back. Letters from the earth. This is a strange place. Man is a marvelous curiosity. When he is at his very, very best, he's a sort of low-grade, nickel-plated angel. At his worst, he's unspeakable. In times past, man's had hundreds and hundreds of religions. Today, he has hundreds and hundreds of religions. And launches not fewer than three new ones every year. One of his principal religions is called the Christian. A Christian believes that every word of his Bible was dictated by this God I've been speaking of. It is full of noble poetry and some clever fables and some blood-drenched history and a wealth of obscenity and upwards of a thousand lies. This Bible is built mainly out of fragments of older Bibles that had their day and then crumbled to ruin. What's amazing about this is that Mark Twain wrote this long before the Dead Sea Scrolls were even discovered, so he was at the cutting edge of biblical scholarship. Okay, so the next thing Satan does is tell the other archangels about the story of Adam and Eve. That innocent Bible tells about the creation. Uh, God made man and woman and placed them in a pleasant garden along with the other animals. And they all lived together in harmony and contentment and blooming youth for some time. Then trouble came. The deity had warned the man and the woman that they must not eat of the fruit of a certain tree. Now, presently, a serpent sought them out privately and came to them walking upright, which was the way of serpents in those days. 
And the serpent told them that the forbidden fruit would store their vacant minds with knowledge. So they ate it, which is quite natural since man is so made that he eagerly wants to know. Whereas the priest and this God whose imitator and representative he is from the very beginning made it his business to keep man from knowing any useful thing. So Adam and Eve ate the apple and at once a great light streamed into their dim heads. They had acquired the moral sense, which differentiates man from the beast and places him above the beast instead of below the beast where one would think his place would be since man is always foul-minded and guilty. The beast is always clean-minded and innocent. So Adam and Eve now knew what evil was and how to do it. They learned how to do various wrong things, and among them, one principal one, the art and mystery of sexual intercourse. To them, this was a magnificent discovery, and they stopped idling around and turned their entire attention to it. Results followed by the name of Cain and Abel, and they had some sisters and knew what to do with them, so more results followed. Cain and Abel begot some nephews and nieces, and these begot some second cousins, and after that the classification of relationships began to get difficult. The pleasant labor of populating the world went on from age to age with prime efficiency. Population grew, but it was a disappointment to the daddy. He was dissatisfied with its morals, which in some respects were not any better than his own. They were a very bad people, so he wisely concluded to abolish them. This is the only really enlightened idea his Bible credits him with and would have made his reputation for all time if he could only have kept to it, but he was always unstable, except in his advertisement. Man was his finest invention after the house fly, so he finally decided to save a sample of them and drown the rest. He saved out Noah and his family. You see, not only was a sample of man to be saved, but business samples of all the other animals, too. You must understand that when Adam ate the apple in the garden and learned how to multiply and replenish, the other animals learned the art, too, by watching Adam. It was cunning of them, for they got all that was worth having out of that apple without afflicting themselves with a moral sense. Well, Noah began collecting animals. Noah had to collect 146,000 kinds of birds, beasts, and freshwater creatures, and upwards of 2 million species of insects. Thousands of those things are very difficult to catch. And if Noah hadn't given up and resigned, he'd be on the job yet. So he had no kangaroos, no possums, no Gila monsters, they having long ago wandered to a side of the world he'd never seen and with whose affairs he was not acquainted. They all came within a hair getting drowned. These facts are all suppressed in the biblical account. You find not a hint of them. The whole thing's been hushed up. Well, the ark continued on its voyage, uh, drifting around here and there and yonder, compassless and uncontrolled, and the rain. The rain, the rain, the rain. No such rain had ever been seen before. Sixteen inches a day had been heard of, but that was nothing to this. This was 120 inches a day, 10 feet, rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and submerged every hill that was 400 feet high. Well, then at last, the ark came to rest on top of Mount Ararat, 17,000 feet above the valley. The living freight got out and went down the mountain. Noah 
planted a vineyard, and drank of the wine, and was overcome. This person was saved out of all the populations because he was the best sample there was. He was to start the human race on a new basis. The promise was bad. Now was the time to do with these people what had been so judiciously done with the others. Drown them! Okay, so that's Mark Twain putting his spin on the Bible. This next bit speaks to us today. And even though when he wrote it, his today was at the beginning of the 20th century, it's still just as valid now in the 21st. Man is, without any doubt, the most interesting fool there is. He, he concedes that God gives to each man his temperament at birth. He concedes that man cannot change his temperament. Well, let's examine these curiosities. Let's take two extremes in temperament, the goat and the tortoise. Now, neither of these creatures makes its own temperament, but is born with it, like man. Very well. Lust is the dominant feature of the goat's temperament, the law of God in his heart, and he must obey it the whole day long in the rutting season without stopping to eat or drink. If the Bible said to the goat, Thou shalt not fornicate, thou shalt not commit adultery, even man, sap-headed man, would recognize the foolishness of that prohibition and grant that the goat ought not to be punished for obeying the law of his maker. Yet, he thinks it right and just that man should be put under the prohibition. On its face, this is stupid, for by temperament, which is the real law of God, many men are goats and can't help committing adultery when they get a chance, whereas there are numbers of men who, by temperament, can keep their purity and let an opportunity go by if the woman lacks in attractiveness. But the Bible allows no adultery at all, whether a man can help it or not. It allows no distinction between goat and tortoise. A goat that has to have some adultery every day or fade and die, and a tortoise that takes a treat once in two years, and then goes to sleep in the midst of it, and doesn't wake up for 60 days. No lady goat is safe if there's a gentleman goat three miles to the leeward of her, and nothing in the way but a fence 14 feet high. Now Mark Twain gets even more specific about sex. From the time a woman's seven years old until she dies of old age, she's ready for action. As competent as the candlestick is to receive the candle. But man is only briefly competent from age 16 or 17, thenceforward for 35 years. After 50, his performance is of poor quality. The intervals between are wide. His candle is weakened by the weather of age. It is mournfully laid to rest in hopes of a blessed resurrection, which is never to come. Now here you have an example of man's reasoning powers. In his life, no man ever sees the day he can satisfy one woman. No woman ever sees the day she can't overwork, defeat, and put out a commission any ten masculine plants. Now, if you or any other intelligent person were arranging the fairnesses and justices between man and woman, you'd give a man one-fiftieth interest in one woman, and a woman a harem. You have heretofore, by my teaching, learned that man is a fool. You're now aware that woman is a damn fool. <laughs> I'm Chris Wallace.